Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to make a start. This is a sellout event. There's hardly any seats left whatsoever. Uh, welcome to the LSC for this uh, evening's event. My name is Bharat Mehta. I'm Chief Executive at Trust for London. And it's a great honour for me to welcome Professor John Hills and uh, Dr. Polly Vizard here today. I'm sure you'll know, most of you will know, I'm sure. John is Professor of Social Policy and Director of the uh, Centre for Analysis of Social Exclusion here at LSE. His research interests include the distribution of income and wealth, the welfare state, social security, pension, housing and taxation. Polly is Senior Research Fellow at CASE and a research interests include equality, capability, and human rights. This event, entitled Changing Patterns of Inequality in the UK, marks the eighth lecture in the 2015 series of LSE Works. LSE Works is uh, a series of public lectures that began in 2011 that showcase some of the latest research by LSE's academic departments and research centres. In each session, LSE academics will present key research findings demonstrating, where appropriate, the implications of their studies for public policy. In 2013, a second series of LSE lectures was held, and in 2015, LSE is delighted to continue the success of LSE works in a third series of public lectures. The next LSE lecture, uh, works lecture will be given by cases Professor Robert Casson, Professor Sandra McNally, Professor Steve Strand, and Professor Anna Vignol, uh, entitled Making a Difference in Education, What the Evidence Says. And that will be on Wednesday, the 6th of May, at 6.30, here in the Hong Kong Theatre. Tonight, Professor John Hills will present new findings from the Social Policy in a Cold Climate Programme of Research which uh, three organisations, Joseph Rowntree Foundation, Nuffield Foundation and my own organisation, Trust for London, has funded, on the ways in which patterns of economic inequality changed in the UK over the economic crisis 2007-2013. Dr Polly Vizard will present new findings on the pattern of inequality in London and how the distribution of key economic outcomes, including income and wealth, employment, unemployment, earnings and wages, educational qualifications, have changed amongst different population groups. Uh, just a few admin issues. Uh, please turn your phones to silent. Uh, you can tweet, of course, and the hashtag is LSEWorks. Uh, we're, going to, this is, this, we're going to try to have this podcast, and you will have seen uh, uh, a notice when you, when you came in that if you don't want to be filmed, then uh, please don't make yourselves sort of conspicuous in any way. Uh, but otherwise, there will hopefully be a podcast, technical issues permitting. As usual, after the lecture, there'll be a chance for you to put your questions to the panel. But for now, you know, we'll have two presentations, first from John, followed immediately by, by Polly. Uh, on neighbours, peers, and educational achievement. And after the after the the talks, which will be around 25 minutes each, I'll open it up to the floor, and I'll give you sort of opportunity to come back and ask any questions that you want. So, first, John. 
Right. Thank you very much, Barrett. And um, thanks in particular to to you and your capacity as um, Director of Trust for London, because um, this is part of a larger programme called Social Policy in a Cold Climate, which um, we've been carrying out with support from Trust for London as well as the Joseph Roundtree Foundation and the the, uh, Nuffield Foundation over the last few years. Um, We we published some papers about what what happened to social policy under the Labour government a um, year and a half ago, two years ago, and we published recently in January a series of papers about social policy under the coalition. This is looking rather differently, not directly at the results of policy, but looking at how the country, and then specifically London, has been changing in terms of inequalities over the, um, over the last few years, in particular over the crisis. Um, the paper I'm talking about, the report I'm talking about, um, which is this one, um, which will, is available on the way out for those of you who want the gory detail, um, is joint work with Jack Cunliffe and Polina um, Oblanskaya and Eleni Karagnaki, who are up in, in the gallery there. I may have to pass difficult questions on to them. Um, um, but um, this has been a lot of work, and we're reporting a lot of stuff. Um, the idea of this was to look at what had been done um, for the National Equality Panel, which reported back in 2010. I chaired that panel, and we had a, a quite a large number of other people on it. Um, and the idea of that was to try and dissect inequality across the UK, not just by who is by the difference between rich and poor, but also looking across a range of different, um, different outcomes. So we looked at qualifications, we looked at employment, we looked at hourly wages, weekly earnings, individual incomes, equivalent net incomes of the kind that are reported in the main income distribution series, and we looked at wealth. Now, the data that the National Equality Panel had, although published in 2010, was mainly around the year 2007. In other words, it gave a picture of what the UK looked like, and we dissected that anatomy of inequality, immediately before the crisis. What we're doing in today's report is to look at the changes that have happened over the crisis. Um, There's a lot of stuff. Um, We are looking at um, eight or nine different kinds of of outcome, uh, mainly economic outcomes. Um, We're looking at, in all, one kind or another, ten different dimensions of difference across the population. We're looking at um, three dates, um, around 2007, 2010, and around 2013, and the differences between them. And we're also very interested in inequalities within groups, not just um, inequalities uh, between groups. So not just the gender wage gap, but the differences between how high-paid women are paid and how low-paid women are paid. Um, That's much more material than one could possibly report in a 100-page report. Um, The good news is that if you're really enthusiastic about this stuff, not only can you pick up the main report on the way out, I hope um, most of you have picked up the eight-page summary on your way in, um, but they're they're also outside as well. Um, But you can also go onto our website um, for any of the data that lies behind the charts in in the main report I'm talking about. Um, You just magically click on the chart and it will take you through to the underlying data. But beyond that, we will shortly, and we'll let people know through our website when it is available, have um, all this data loaded up on a website called www.case.org.uk 
where you can pick any of these breakdowns you want, comparing them between whichever dates you want, um, and go into much more detail than we can, we can do here. So the idea of this is to create a resource that's available to anybody who's interested in different aspects of the state of inequalities at the moment. Now, just to give a quick idea of the overall picture, um, because that's the background to some of the stuff I can give you a flavour of this evening, um, even over a six-year period, um, which we're looking at comparing around 2007 with 2013, there's a huge increase in the formal qualifications of the working age population. And by the time we get to 2013, a quarter of men and 27% of women of working age now have a degree or a higher degree. Um, um, however, over the same period, we know we've gone through the crisis. Um, in the first part of the crisis between 2007 and 2010, employment fell by 2.3 percentage points. It then picked up a bit to the period we're looking at. To get all the breakdowns we want, we're looking through to 2013. It's risen a little bit more um, since then, of course, in the most recent data. Um, so that was bad news followed by some good news. Unemployment was bad news followed by some slightly better news, but only slightly better news. Um, from a, a starting point of 4.1% unemployment rate, we ended up at 5.7% unemployment rate um, after the period. But all of the news in the labour market in terms of wages and earnings is uh, remorselessly bad. just going to get rid of that. Just to recording. Um, so um, hourly wages, looking across um, all employees of all kinds, fell by nearly 3% in the first period, first three years, and then fell by a further 3%. That's adjusting by the Consumer Price Index. At the same time, within the Labour Force survey data, earnings became more unequal. The gap between those near the top at the 90th percentile and those near the bottom at the 10th percentile um, rose slightly. Now, the Labour Force survey is not the only survey that looks at, at wages, and you get a slightly different picture of what's happening at the top if you look at a different survey called the Annual Survey of of hours and earnings. So we need to be a little bit careful about the picture the Labour Force Survey gives at the bottom. Um, the, the drop in, in even just concentrating on full-time employees, um, the drop in full-time weekly earnings in real terms was even bigger and was bigger at the bottom than in the middle. Now, there is a frustration with these figures, as I'm sure some of you will, will know, that the main income distribution figures, where we've had huge help um, with these numbers from the Department for Work and Pensions, but the available data at the moment refer to the financial year 2012-13, ending in March 2013. And remember the history of that period, that as we went into recession and real wages for those in work started falling, benefits were initially protected in real terms, both under the last government and in the first two years of the coalition. The big changes in coalition policy, not all of them because some had already started, but the big changes of, of raising benefits by less than inflation, some of the biggest, most dramatic cuts and things like council tax uh, benefit and uh, the bedroom tax and so on came in in April 2013. And we don't have the numbers for those. We will not have those numbers until June this year, um, which will be, we'll know what happened once the election is, is passed. And that's the, the normal sequence of, this, um, of these publications, I should say. Um, so, um, in the first period, although median middle um, incomes before housing costs fell um, over that five-year period, 
They actually rose at the bottom by a small amount because price-protective benefits were protecting people at the bottom. And that's why you see um, that inequality fell. It mainly fell in election year 2010. That's why inequality in 2012-13 is income inequality is slightly lower than it was, is lower than it was um, back in 2007-8. On the other hand, the protection given against rising housing costs was, um, was um, less effective um, so that even at the bottom, um, the bottom um, cut off at the bottom tenth, um, there was a fall almost as much as, as higher up. And then we've also been lucky enough to have um, support from the Office for National Statistics in using the Wealth and Assets Survey, um, the most recent year of which is the two-year period from 2010 to 2012, so immediately after the crisis, so going from um, July 2010 through to, to um, June 2012, so sort of around um, 2011 really. Over the four years covered, therefore covering the crisis, in the middle, the nominal value of wealth, including houses, including financial assets, including people's personal possessions, but not including pension rights, barely changed at all. On the other hand, it grew by 8% near the top, and it actually grew by 7% near the bottom, although for the people near the bottom, that was only £500. So it was a, a, you know, it was a significant percentage increase, but not a very large amount of money. Okay, so that's the background to what I'm going to be telling you about different groups. What about different groups? And this will be very quick, so please either ask questions afterwards, but um, we'll delve into the report and more detail in the website. Um, Clearly, um, qualifications of women grew more quickly over this period than men, and by the end of it, um, women of working age in, um, in the UK are now better qualified than men at further degree, degree, and higher education level. Um, As the recession started, men were worst hit in terms of employment and unemployment in the first bit, but they've they've gained more in the recovery. What's happened overall to the gender pay gap is actually quite ambiguous. It depends whether you look at what's happened to median pay, median earnings. Uh, It depends whether you're looking at all employees or just full-time employees. Um, whether, you're, whether you're looking at, um, at mean, average, average pay. They tell slightly different stories. Um, I mean, mainly, I think the story is that, um, um, as far as wages are concerned, in the middle, um, men and women were, were hit much the same way, but I'll show you some differences in a second. On the other hand, women's incomes, and I'll show you this in a moment, um, fell less than men's in the period up to 2012-13. So the overall income gap mainly looking at the difference between um, single women and, and single men of one kind or another, um, women were more protected. And that's because more women, single lone parents um, or single um, female pensioners, um, have a largest chunk of their income coming from what were price-protected benefits or pensions over this period. Um, so this is what happened to, um, to pay. Um, so in this, in this data series, this is hourly pay for people... <coughs> Um, working, uh, this is all work, yeah, working full time. So for men, uh, looking at the position of people a tenth of the way up the distribution, uh, um, 30, no, a thir- uh, three tenths of the way up the distribution in the middle at the 70th percentile, and then 10% of the way from the top, um, the falls were bigger, um, lower down than higher up, although, as I say, there may be some doubt around this particular figure um, in, in terms of the response in, in this particular survey. But the other thing I need to point, about, to point, this, point out here is we've shaded here the difference between the darker thing, what happened in the first three years, and then cross-hatch what happened in the second 
um, in the second three years. Um, so there you've got the bigger drops at the bottom, 7% um, right, at the, uh, right at the bottom um, and, and um, near the bottom. Um, for women, the drops at the bottom um, were fairly similar. But reflecting, I think, what was also happening in employment and unemployment, um, it's in the second period after 2010 that women's, earnings, it, women's hourly pay is hit harder um, than men. So more of the loss for women is coming in this second period. So overall, there may, might not be so, so much difference, but 2010 to 2013, um, the position of women looks a little bit worse, evening things out from the, from the first period. And then, as I said, if you look at what's happened by income, and this is based on um, adding together the incomes of, of, of um, whole households, adjusting for household size, um, in this case, allowing for, ho- for housing costs, um, and assuming that within a household everybody shares the same level of income. So if a man, or, man and woman are in a couple, um, there won't be any difference in what's happened to their income. So the differences we see here are a result of... Um, the differences between what's happened to basically to poor single men and poor single women. Um, here we see the protective effect to some extent, um, not, obviously not stopping real incomes falling after allowing for rents um, and other housing costs. Um, but um, single men, both single um, working age men um, at the bottom and um, single um, male pensioners, I think doing worse uh, than, than single women. So a difference in the gradient between the two, the, for women, the, the better off doing worse, um, for men, the worse off doing, doing worse. Um, we also look at ethnicity. Um, this is in many ways a much more complex kind of pattern. I think it's quite striking now, and I'll show you the, the numbers in a moment, um, the difference in, in qualifications now between ethnic groups in Britain. Um, This is partly reflecting some age differences. Uh, Minority ethnic groups tend to be younger and therefore been through the education system more recently and therefore have um, higher levels of paper qualifications. Um, But even so, I think it's striking that over this period um, the rise in the percentage of white adults in the working age population with higher level qualifications was slower than for other groups. With the result, as I'll show you in a moment, um, a smaller proportion of white adults now have degrees or higher degrees Um, than any other ethnic group apart from um, Bangladeshi adults. But at the same time, looking at the labour market and looking at incomes, um, white households and and, um, white adults retain their advantages um, in most respects. Um, An exception to that is that the most recent Wealth and Assets Survey numbers on wealth, um, again looking at non-pension wealth, so houses and so on, uh, now show that Indian and Chinese households now have the highest uh, median uh, wealth, over £200,000 in the case of Chinese households compared with 155000 for white households. Um, rather depressingly, looking across most of many of the bits of data, um, we show um, Bangladeshi and Pakistani adults in the labour market and, and households um, stay at the bottom. But there is now this quite interesting gap um, between the wealth levels of Pakistani and Bangladeshi households, where um, compared with the 155,000 um, non-pension wealth median for white households, Pakistani households were not that far behind, um, whereas Bangladeshi households' um, wealth is only £21,000. So we see and map out, and um, I'm sure there's a lot more work to be done in, in terms of trying to understand some of these patterns, 
we talk about them in, in the report and the data will be available, um, quite a lot of, of, of um, differences of one kind or another. I mean, this is just showing the scale of what I was just talking about in terms of qualifications. Um, so these are different ethnic groups, Chinese at the top, Bangladeshi at the bottom, um, ranked in order of percentage with, with degrees. So higher degrees um, going along here, so um, 20% of the Chinese population, um, Chinese working age adults now have, have higher degrees. Um, half now have a first degree or a, or a higher degree. Um, running down um, um, to, if we group together um, degree higher education, you'll see that, um, um, that only 20% of the white population have degrees or higher degrees and a smaller percentage of, Bangla- of the Bangladeshi population. Um, um, so we have quite a lot of information on that. There's also a clear picture in terms of what's happening by, um, by housing tenure. And again, in many ways, um, thinking of, of disadvantage, um, this is quite a depressing picture for social, um, for social tenants in particular. Um, so the increase in qualification levels of social tenants was very slow by comparison with people living in other housing tenures. Um, uh, employment... Um, fell uh, more quickly than in other groups from an already much lower level than for other tenure groups. And men's earnings, even for the minority, the small minority of social tenants who are working um, full-time, fell by um, 11% for men and 9% for women uh, compared with um, a maximum of 6 or 7% for other tenures. And unemployment rose twice as fast for for male social tenants as for (coughs) owner-occupiers. But if we look at incomes and allow, again, for the effect of the protective effect of the social security system, it's actually private tenants whose incomes fell fastest. And I'll give a picture of that in a moment. Um, and accompanying, at the same time, accompanying um, what's happening with, um, uh, to, to wealth distribution overall, um, we now have even larger gaps than we started with in terms of wealth between 10 years. So, the median, middle wealth for people who own their house outright is now over £300,000 before we allow for their pensions, um, whereas for social and private tenants, it's less than £20,000. So those gaps have widened. Um, so here we've got um, people in work, so people employed full-time, uh, employed part-time, um, employed with an unknown time in black there, and then self-employed. And you'll see down here we've now got... Um, um, less than half of um, social, t- uh, social tenant adults in any kind of employment. And remember, we know that, although we don't have good figures on self-employment earnings, we do know that the incomes of people who are counted as self-employed have fallen quite considerably, 20%, I think, over this, um, over this period. Um, so a lot of that self-employment is actually very marginal. Um, it's actually very marginal work. Um, but this is what happens when we look by income, um, looking um, on at um, social tenants on the left with the bottom tenth of social tenants through to the top tenth of social tenants who don't come that far up the overall income distribution, then private tenants, then outright owners tend to be older, and then people with mortgages. Um, overall, in terms of incomes, up to 2012-13, um, mortgagors um, allowing for their housing costs, interest rates were falling rather than rising, um, did... Uh, Owners with mortgages did least badly. Um, outright owners 
did next worst, uh, least worst. But then the big losses are um, looking at um, private tenants, um, a fall of 19% for the, for the best-off private tenants, comparing them with the best-off private tenants uh, before the crisis. Um, but also within um, social tenants, at the bottom, already by 2012-13, predating the, the bedroom tax, we've got a 10% fall in the real incomes of people living um, in the poorest people living in social housing. But, I mean, that's all quite a complicated picture, and you'll see in the report uh, a lot more detail on that. But there is one really very simple story. Um, who in the room was born in the 1980s? I'm sorry. Um, you have done um, the right thing in terms of what we're all told to do, in terms of being the better quali- best qualified generation that Britain has ever had. Actually, it's people who are in their 30s who are actually the best qualified generation, but people in their 20s are better qualified than the people in the 30s were at the same age. So there's a tremendous success story in terms of qualification levels by age. But employment fell faster over the period we're looking at, mainly a six-year period. Wages fell faster, incomes fell faster, and wealth fell while it grew for um, older households aged over 65. Um, And I think importantly, I think we're used to this. In fact, there have been three reports in the last week saying precisely the same thing if you've been looking at different newspapers who've reported different, different, different people's bits of growth. But, um, but this is um, something that there was some work from the Institute of Fiscal Studies last Friday, from the Social Market Foundation on Tuesday, from the Resolution Foundation and ourselves today. This is a very clear picture. And we look in this report across all of the outcomes I've been talking about, and it is pretty well remorselessly bad news. And it's bad news, I'm very sorry for the LSE students in the audience, but maybe you're just behind, you'll be on the crest of a wave um, behind this. Um, Even the best-off young people were affected. So I'm just going to show you a series of very similar kinds of graphs that you'll find in the report. So this is median full-time hourly pay by age over basically the um, six-year period um, straddling the, um, the crisis. Um, what I've got on the left are men, and on the right are women, starting for those teenagers aged 16 to 19, not so many of them these days um, in work, up to um, men aged over 70 and um, women aged um, 65 to 69. Again, the dark blue shows the falls in real wages, hourly wages in the first period, and then the hashed bit shows what happened, what carried on happening after 2010. And we're now talking about falls compared with their predecessors of the same age six years before. We're talking about falls for men of 14%, 12%, for, that's even for men in their early 30s, 10% um, for men in their, in, their early, um, in their early 20s. And similar falls for women in their 20s. These are really staggering falls compared with any previous experience, um, I think, uh, of what, what people's expectations might have been going into the labour market, except maybe in, in some of the worst, um, in the worst of, the last, of, the, of the 1930s slump. But um, men aged 60 to 64, actually I was in this group, um, we broke even, so that's okay. And actually men aged over 70 
um, a 15% increase compared with a rather small group of men aged over 70. Um, one of the good pieces of good news in this is if you looked at employment, um, people are now working longer, um, so you actually get employment gains up, up here as well. Uh, that's hourly pay for people working full-time. This is um, weekly earnings for those working full-time, and I'm afraid the news is no better because what's happened is that hours, uh, hours fell um, as well. Um, so that we're now looking at falls of 15% in weekly full-time earnings for men in their late 20s, 16% uh, for women in their late 20s, almost as much for those in their, in their early 20s, um, and then about 8% for men and women in their early 30s. Um, and as I, I haven't got a slide of it, but, but these falls are the same at the 90th percent, are similar at the 90th percentile of people in these age groups. There's not room in this slide, but you'll see it in the, you'll see it in the report. It's not just a matter of the people at the bottom of um, the labour market, the ones who haven't got the qualifications. It's the people going into careers at lower starting points, going into unpaid internships, um, and all of that stuff. It's just a very different labour market from the way it was in 2007. Um, this is um, incomes after housing costs. Now, this is this this now starts with under five. So this is because this is using the household's average income data set. Um, it allows for people of all ages, including children, with children being allocated the income of the household they live in, adjusted for its size. Um, so over 60. Um, you'll see the falls after allowing for housing costs. Um, you know, we would have thought this was bad news a few years ago, but by comparison with anybody else, and, and do remember that, um, that historically people aged over 60, 61 have had, had lower median incomes than, than other age groups, um, but a lot of protection going on through the pension system and, no, and much less to lose by way of what's happening in the labour market. Children losing particularly in the second period, particularly after 2010. And this is before you know, child benefit was frozen, but, but this is before some of the cuts in benefits that, and tax credits that have affected um, families with children since April 2013. But young people, over what is only a five-year period, um, compared with the people five years before, a sixth worse off after allowing for housing costs. And this is despite the fact that quite a lot of these young people have moved back to their parents and are therefore being allocated a, a, an income of the, of the whole household in which they live. Um, these are really very large um, falls indeed. Um, and there's no, no better news in terms of wealth. So these are just nominal. They're not inflation adjusted. It's not, not obvious what the correct inflation adjustment is as far as wealth is concerned. So this is looking at, again, at non-pension wealth, um, what's happened to... Um, to that. Now, 16, 24-year-olds um, have lost a lot of wealth, but they didn't have very much to start with. Um, big, quite big percentage falls um, for people aged 25 to 44. This is the age of the household reference person, um, usually the higher income person in the household. But gains in nominal wealth, um, compared with their predecessors four years earlier, of really quite a lot for people aged over 65. Now, those are percentage changes, and they don't necessarily mean so much. Um, so I just want to highlight some figures here. I mean, here, here are the absolute numbers. So, so those falls we were seeing at the bottom, people aged 25 to 34, 5,000 pounds worse off than, than their predecessors had been, dropping to 43,000 um, pounds. But gains at the top of 20, 24,000 um, pounds. At the median, I can produce much bigger numbers if you want to look at the uh, 90th percentile. Um, 
But I think what I want to end with is to highlight really these two numbers, uh, or these four numbers. Um, this is the difference in median wealth of people aged around 30 and people aged, um, is that one I'm most interested in, <laughs> aged around 60. So £43,000 to £233,000. So a difference of um, £170,000. Uh, no, sorry, £190,000. £190,000 for groups that are 30 years apart. Now, this doesn't include pension rights. Um, we've got the numbers in the report including pension rights. If you include pension rights, um, the difference between these two age groups, the ones aged around 60, like me, and the ones aged around 30, like some of you, um, is £365,000. Now, think about that for a moment, about what, even with your LSE degree, but, but suppose you've just got median typical qualifications and you earn median wages, or your household income is the typical take-home income for a couple of about £24,000 a year. To bridge that gap, the younger generation has to save £12,000 every year for the next 30 years if they're going to do it through their own efforts. Just to put that in a bit of perspective, that is £33 each and every day for the next 30 years until 2044, 2045. Now, it's not happening. We know that actually young people are dissaving in a way that people of their age, because they've been, I've just shown you the reasons why, in a way that people of their age weren't dissaving um, in previous cohorts. That gap is not going to be bridged as far as we can see at the moment, through people's own savings and their own pension contributions. I mean, you might be getting pension contributions as well. What matters then? I mean, this wealth is not going to disappear. This is non-pension wealth. This is houses, financial assets, and so on. You know, the house prices could crash, and um, the stock market could crash, but that wealth is not going to disappear. But it's this wealth will at some point be transmitted to the next generation, to some members of that generation. But look at the bottom line. This is the 90-10 ratio. This is a measure of inequality that compares the wealth of people near the top with people near the bottom. Um, for incomes and earnings, it's about 4 to 1. Um, for wealth, nationally, um, on this measure, it's nearly 70 to 1. But that's not just a product of those age differences. We've got a ratio here of 30 to 1 amongst people aged over 75. So whether what the wealth these people end up with will depend hugely on precisely who their grandparents and how kind their parents are, whether they're own occupiers in London and the South East. So that we're moving from a world where, more than ever, inheritance and assistance from parents will be large in comparison with incomes. And those of you who followed um, the coverage of Thomas Piketty's book last year, that was his point. We're just seeing a, a, a local manifestation of his point about what happens when the value of wealth grows in relation to the value of income, which he traces back over the last 200 years. Okay, so before I hand over to Polly, this is just a quick recap. So um, the legacy of the crisis has not fallen evenly. We haven't all been hit equally. Um, some different things have happened as far as men and women are concerned. Social tenants have done worse in the labour market, but private tenants have done worse in terms of incomes. Uh, within by ethnic group, the picture is quite complicated with things going in different directions, but, but by and large, white households have retained their advantage, except now not selling wealth. But the big story, really, is 
um, what's happened to um, the, the gaps um, by age and what's happened, um, I'm sorry to say, to those of you who were born in the 1980s. I'm sorry to give some of you bad news, but some of you have had some good news because you're of a different age. I'll now hand over to Polly. Thank you, John. Um, So, as John and Barrett have mentioned, we've published a second research report today under the title The Changing Anatomy of Economic Inequality in London, 2007 to 2013. So, it's also involved a team of people. Um, Their names are on the screen there, and it's also available after um, the event tonight. So what we've tried to do in this report is to present a really detailed picture of patterns of inequality and disadvantage in London in the wake of the crisis and downturn. And we've used the same methodology that John has used in the national work. Um, So we've looked at a series of economic outcomes, um, income, wealth, earnings, wages, educational qualifications and so forth and we've looked at patterns of inequality between the same set of population groups so inequalities by gender, age, ethnic group, disability, religion and belief, social class, housing, tenure and so forth really building on the protected characteristics that are recognised in national equality legislation. So in terms of our overall findings There is a narrative um, that has developed in recent years that London's different from the rest of the country, a story of divergence from the rest. London had higher growth rates during part of the 2000s, London being more resilient in the period of the recession and then bouncing back more quickly in the post-recession period. So with London moving away increasingly from the rest in terms of its disadvantages. But what we show in the report is that the capital's economic success and resilience in recession did not translate into lower inequality for Londoners. And we show that this is partly an issue of the squeeze middle and um, the median average Londoner, but also that economic outcomes for some of the poorest, lowest paid and most disadvantaged Londoners deteriorated substantially in the wake of the economic crisis and the economic downturn. And meanwhile, at the same time, over the same period, wealth at the top of the distribution, as John has been saying, increased substantially in London. And inequality, which was already high, higher than in the rest of the country at the beginning of the period, 2007 and 8, further increased against some indicators that we've been looking at. And at the end of the period, remained um, greater than in the rest of the country. So inequality in London higher at the beginning of the period, higher at the end of the period. So what I'm going to do in the time available is present six main findings that back up those um, overall conclusions that we've reached. So first of all, the poorest Londoners and some disadvantaged groups were hard hit in the aftermath of the crisis and the downturn. And in fact, if we look at income after housing costs, we can say that the poorest Londoners um, experienced bigger um, falls in after housing costs income um, than those, the richest Londoners and also um, than their poorer, poor counterparts in the rest of the country. Um, 
If we look at the um, income after housing costs um, that John's been showing us earlier, but we look this time um, at what's happened both in London, which is in the um, blue heavy bars that are on the chart, but also um, the rest of the UK with London separated out, so the rest of the UK excluding London. We can see that at the um, median, um, there were falls in London of after-housing cost income, very substantial falls of 11%. And at the top end of the distribution, at the 90th percentile, there were falls of 10%. So really big falls in London at the top end of the distribution, but not nearly as big as those at the bottom of the distribution. So amongst the poorest Londoners, this 19% fall. So this 19% fall for the poorest of Londoners was both bigger than the fall for the richest Londoners, um, resulting in an increase in inequality in after-housing costs income over the period. But it was also bigger um, than for um, the poor counterparts um, of poor Londoners in the rest of the country, so the poorest 10% in the rest of the country, who experienced 6% falls in their after-housing costs income over the period. And some groups um, fared particularly badly, and um, John's already said that private renters in particular have fared badly, and in London that's been especially true um, with um, the expensive housing costs in London. And on this chart we've got, again, income um, after housing costs income that's been adjusted for um, family composition and size, again, so equivalised income. Um, again, in London and the rest of the UK. Um, so the figures over here, whoops, sorry. Um, the figures for the rest of the UK here, um, and figures for London here. And again, as John showed you, this is um, set out now by um, housing tenure. So um, what happened to the poorest 10% by different types of housing tenure, rented from council, rented privately, owned outright and owned with a mortgage. And if you um, could focus on this area here, so for Londoners, what happened to those privately renting in London at the bottom of the distribution, so the poorest private renters, um, we can see here that there is a fall in their income um, after housing costs um, of, from £83 a week. Um, down to £39 a week. So that is a fall of £44, a 53% fall in their after-housing cost income, leaving them with only £39 in equivalised housing uh, income terms um, a week um, to survive on, really a staggeringly low figure um, for disposable income and living standards after housing costs. So really quite a shocking figure there. And another group that have done um, particularly um, badly um, seem to be disabled people, the poorest disabled people in London. And um, I should mention that there is a discontinuity in the identification of the disabled population in the underlying survey data, which makes this rather difficult to interpret. Um, but if we work on a best estimates basis, um, what we think has happened to the poorest disabled people in London... Um, so here are the figures for London on this side, and this is people um, who are not disabled and people who are disabled who experience a limiting long-standing illness or disability, so that they're physically disabled or um, blind or hard of hearing, or they've got a long-standing limiting illness such as cancer or HIV. Um, so their after-housing costs income 
we think has um, declined from around £141 a week to around £100 a week. So another large, um, substantial decline there um, of £41 a week for one of the most disadvantaged sets of Londoners, the poorest disabled. Our second set of findings relate to unemployment, and it's true to say that unemployment did increase less in the capital than um, it did elsewhere in the country. Um, But it's also important to note that unemployment was already at a higher base in 2007 and 2008 in London, so a higher higher level than in other parts of the country, and that it further increased in London over the period of the downturn and crisis, and also that it affected some population groups more than it did others. So here we have the percentage of the working-age population who are classified as unemployed, Um, in London and this time the rest of England over the period 2007-8 to 2012-13. And we can see that in um, London as a whole, um, we had a two percentage point increase in unemployment amongst all Londoners. Um, Then um, if we look at the position of young adults, um, John's talked about how hard hit young adults have been in particular, um, and that's also true. Um, Unemployment has hit um, young adults hard in London, um, so unemployment rates rising um, from 10% um, to 13.5%, um, levels even slightly higher um, than in the rest of the country for 16 to 24-year-olds, and an above-average increase there of 3.5 percentage points. People with disabilities also um, increasing rates of unplo- unemployment, um, and really notable disparities um, among different ethnic groups. So for the white British group, we've got um, an unemployment rate of 5.4% by 2012-13, whereas if we look at the uh, rates amongst the white and black Caribbean ethnic group, we've got a rise from 10.4% to 15.3%. That's an above average, well above average rise um, of nearly five percentage points. Amongst Pakistani ethnic group, a rise from 7 to 12%. That's um, a five percentage point rise. Um, And amongst the black African ethnic group, a rise from 9.4% to 13.4%. So again, another um, above average rise. If we look at this um, by religion and belief, um, we can see at the bottom here that those who um, self-identify as being Muslims um, have also got particularly high rates of unemployment by the end of the period. We did find that the um, increase in part-time work and self-employment, so there's been a lot of talk of a shift towards part-time employment and self-employment in recent years, and we found that that was particularly pronounced in London. So London leading the way, really, in increased participation rates in part-time employment and self-employment. In fact, um, we had statistically significant increases in both um, in London, whereas for the rest of the country, on average, um, those increases were not statistically significant. So London really um, in- increasing its participation quite notably in, in part-time, in- increased rates in part of part-time work and self-employment. And there's been um, some talk of whether the increases in part-time work have been concentrated amongst lower-skilled workers, And we do find some evidence um, from the London work that that has been the case. So um, this chart gives the um, change in um, employment status by socioeconomic group 
Um, so ranging from higher managerial and professional groups um, through semi-routine and routine occupations. Um, and we've got here um, changing rates um, for uh, full-time work and part-time work. And we can see here these very notable decreases in rates of um, full-time work um, for the routine occupations and the semi-routine occupations. So routine occupations, people like cleaners and waiters, for example. Um, and conversely, um, if we look at the part-time um, statistics, then we get these very substantial increases in part-time working amongst those lower-skilled jobs. Now, the increase in part-time work um, seems to have affected men in particular, um, but there are some groups of women for whom part-time participation rates seem to be increasing quite interestingly. Um, one of those is, again, amongst disabled women. Um, so here we've got um, disabled um, figures on, um, by disability again, so limiting long-standing illness or disability. Um, and the, this is, so this is women in London with disabilities, and it's their part-time participation rates. And we see a substantial increase of five percentage points in part-time working amongst disabled women in London. And other groups um, that, um, of women um, also seem to be increasing their participation in part-time work. And um, particularly um, interesting here are increasing um, rates of part-time employment amongst um, Bangladeshi and Pakistani women. John has been talking about the um, substantial falls in weekly earnings and hourly wages, and this also occurred in London. So at the median, um, the falls in part-time weekly earnings and part-time hourly wages were more pronounced in London. So this chart gives changes in median earnings and wages in London and the rest of the country. Um, so here we have median full-time earnings, median full-time wages, median part-time earnings and median part-time wages, and it changes again. Um, so here we see a 4% fall in median full-time earnings in London, um, smaller than in the rest of the country, um, a fall in median full-time wages, um, and again, somewhat smaller than the decline in the rest of the country, but nevertheless substantial. Um, when it comes to part-time workers, the falls in London are slightly bigger than those that occurred in the rest of the country. Um, one group that have been particularly hard hit in terms of earnings falls are men working part-time um, and at the bottom of the distribution, so the poorest men who were working full-time. And we can see here um, at the 10th percentile, so for the poorest or the, the less, um, least well-paid, those that are earning less, the bottom 10%, um, amongst men, their um, decline in part-time earnings was 17%. So really big fall there. Um, some of that will be because they are working fewer hours, but on the other hand, on the previous slide, we've seen that wages are coming down too. And because um, wages are coming down um, and, and of the pressures on the labour market, we um, have quite a substantial increase in the proportion earning less than the London living wage over the period that we've been looking at. So um, this table gives the percentage of employees in London with gross hourly wages that are less than the London living wage thresholds. Um, and just something about methodology here, we have based these findings on the Labour Force Survey, which, as John has already said, um, gives slightly different estimates to those based on ASH. 
Um, also, the, um, the thresholds we have applied, we have applied the £8.80 London living wage threshold for the whole of the year, calendar year 2013, um, an £8.55 threshold for 2012, um, and for 2007 and 2008, £7.20 and £7.45 thresholds. So that's broadly based on the announced rates of London living wage. And we can see um, at the top here, um, amongst um, all employees, um, a rise of four percentage points um, in employees um, who have gross wages that are less than those thresholds. The increases have been bigger amongst women um, here, um, 21.3% to 27.2%. That's a six percentage point rise. So a bigger increase amongst women. Um, we have large proportions of 16 to 24-year-olds working um, in low pay. Um, we can see it here, uh, whacking 50%. Um, again, big disparities by ethnic group. So if we look at the proportion for white British ethnic groups, um, we've got 13.8% um, rising to 16.9%. Um, if we then look at um, Pakistani ethnic group, um, we have these really colossal figures of 33.7% rising to 43.8%, so that is a 10 percentage point rise over the period. And again, if we look at Bangladeshi employees, um, Bangladeshi ethnic group employees, um, we have a 14 percentage point increase. We also have an increase amongst those who... Um, have a long-standing limiting illness or disability and also um, are work-limiting disabled. Um, and the rates here, again, amongst um, Muslims are particularly high. So a rate of 34.3% rising to 43.6% over the period. That's a 9 percentage point rise over the period um, amongst Muslim Londoner employees. Um, the rates um, of low pay are greater um, in outer London than they are in inner London, and they're also particularly marked amongst those working part-time. So whilst all of that was happening, um, at the other end of the spectrum, there were colossal increases in absolute um, terms in the nominal wealth amongst the top 10% in London. Um, John's already talked about the increases in wealth. Um, and there is particular um, London um, story there. So um, this chart gives um, changes in nominal wealth at the 90th percentile, so that's at the top of the wealth distribution, the most wealthy, um, between 2006-08 and 2010-12 um, in London and the rest of Great Britain. Um, that we're working with three um, different measures of wealth. Um, one is financial and physical wealth, um, and so physical wealth is people's possessions, everything from their cars to their kind of fridges and kitchen tables, and financial wealth is their savings. Um, and then um, property gets added in, as um, John was looking at earlier, and we can also look at the wealth, um, including future pension rights. So just focusing on this um, second measure here, um, so this is the measure that incorporates financial, physical, and property wealth. Um, we can see in London... Um, an increase um, at the 90th percentile from £597,100 wealth holdings um, to £749,900. So a whacking increase of 152800 that's a 26% increase at the top of the distribution. Bigger increase than in the rest of the country. 
Now, it is true that there have also been um, increases in wealth at the bottom of the distribution in London on um, that particular measure. Um, but really, when you look at the levels involved, these really dwarf into insignificance when we compare um, them to the increases at the top end of the distribution. So just to show you that, um, this slide um, compares on the same scale the changes at the top of the distribution at the 90th percentile to those at the bottom of the distribution in the 10th percentile. So it's the same measure that we just had. Um, And this is the increase that um, I've just explained on the previous slide um, at the 90th percentile, so the increase here um, of 26%. Um, And this big towering um, blue bar here um, represents that change at the top of the distribution. Um, The changes at the median um, have been much smaller. Um, And it's also interesting to note that um, there has been a slight change in ranking between London and the rest of the country, so wealth holdings lower um, at the beginning of the period in London at the median, um, but then um, London overtaking the rest at the median um, by the end of the period. We look at the changes at the bottom, at the 10th percentile. Um, It's really difficult to see them on this chart, and that's quite intentional to put them on the same scale because they really are so negligible compared to the changes at the top, but we have an increase from 3,100 at 10th percentile in London to 4,500. That's a £1,400 increase. It is a 45% increase, so in percentage terms, it's a bigger change um, than that at the top. So we do overall have a slight decrease in wealth inequality in London, in fact, over the period because of that Um, The final point is that inequality was greater in London than in the rest of the country at the beginning of the period, the end of the period, and further increased against some indicators over the period. Um, So just to um, show you um, some findings on that, this is a summary of the 90-10 ratios. Um, John explained that's the ratio of the value of the outcome at the 90th percentile to the 10th percentile um, in London and the rest of the country. Um, 2007 8 to around 2012 and 13. And the slide gives the 90 10 ratios for a number of the different outcomes that we've been looking at. So, full time weekly earnings, part time weekly earnings, full time hourly wages, part time hourly wages, wealth, income before housing costs, and income after housing costs. And it gives those ratios both in 2007 8, that's these two rows here, and in 2012 13 or about. Um, and that's these two rows here in London and then in not in London the rest of the country and again in London and not in London the rest of the country and we can see from the higher 90-10 ratios in London um, that London was more unequal at the beginning of the period Um, so in each case for each outcome with the exception of this one um, part-time weekly earnings we have a higher 90-10 ratio in London um, at the beginning of the period At the end of the period, that pattern is also true. Um, Again, there's the exception here. Um, But generally speaking, 90-10 ratios in London much higher, including these really staggering um, 90-10 ratios of 192, um, which did fall slightly to 166, but really huge inequality in wealth in London, um, both at the beginning and the end of the period. We also, in London had an increase in inequality in inequality as measured the 90-10 by the 90-10 ratio against two measures. Um, so full-time weekly earnings, um, an increase, and income after housing costs, an increase here. 
um, from 8.2 to 9.2. So London not only was more unequal at the beginning of the period, but further um, inequality further increased against some of the measures that we've been looking at. So just to conclude, um, it's really a tale of two cities, um, wealth accumulating amongst the wealthy, um, the wealthiest of wealthy, the London wealthy, inequality against some measures increasing, um, and substantial declines in economic outcomes for some of the poorest, lowest paid and most disadvantaged Londoners. So inequality and disadvantage um, clearly major challenges for the upcoming period for whoever wins the national elections and the mayoral elections in 2016. Um, Just to build on what um, John said about the data tool, um, we have, um, this is the um, tip of the iceberg in terms of the data that's being collected in the project and we have all of the outcomes by all of the characteristics um, for London and those will all be available via the case data tool um, from this evening, I I believe, and um, also we are having a blog which will extend some of the analysis um, which will be um, blogged and circulated in the coming weeks. Thank you. Thanks very much to John and Polly for a terrific uh, attempt to summarise some a mass of data. Uh, you'll be able to pick up the, the publications in, uh, in due course on your, on your way out. I'm going to open it up to the floor now. We've got uh, around 15 minutes, something like that, uh, but I'll, I'll judge it on, on how many questions we've got. But if you can raise your raise your hands, and I will uh, I'll, I'll call on you. Wait until you get the rowing microphone. Identify yourself. Ask your question. I'll take it in in groups of two or three questions. And I'm also looking up to the to the gallery. Any questions there? I don't want to miss you out. So I've got one there, and Sir over there, and three Steve. Okay. So first yourself. Sarkar, uh, I'm a evening scholar here. I've come from India for two months. You mentioned uh, Pakistani men experience the largest increase in unemployment over the period. Why is it so? Is it anything to do with the growing Islamophobia in UK? Okay. Um, Can we take yeah, it in, in threes? Uh, sir, over there. Dr. Keith Postler. Uh, Yes, teacher, Department of Methodology. Um, Does your data include, or do you have any comment upon non-DOMs in this, um, um, as available in this? It's a good question. And one behind you. This is not favoritism, by the way. Go on. Just a question about the... uh, Do you want to identify yourself? Uh, Steve Kerr from Trust for London. Um, the question about the intergenerational wealth gap. Um, just wondering if you've got any sense of how that compares uh, to sort of historically to other periods because, I mean, you'd, you'd expect a 60-year-old to own a lot more wealth than a 30-year-old. Yeah. So how's that changed? Yeah. Okay, that's great. Three questions. Right, we'll take, uh, take answers. John, do you want to go okay. first? Um, let me start with, with the last one. I mean, yes, of course, there are, there are differences by age. There always have been. 
Um, younger people haven't had a chance to, to save anything, build up pension rights, uh, start paying off their mortgages. Um, so that's one of the reasons I was looking at people aged 30. Um, I think the key thing is that those gaps have grown in absolute terms by comparison with people's incomes. So the gaps across the generations are now equivalent to more years of income than they used to be. So it's the, I think the key phenomenon is not that there's a difference, an age profile, of course there's an age profile, but, um, but they're bigger in terms of their, their worth in terms of incomes. This is really the Piketty point. And actually the gaps between, within each of those groups are wider than they were. Um, in terms of non-DOMs, I would expect... We're dependent here on people who um, res- respond to government social surveys. Um, I have a feeling that the response rate is less amongst non-DOMs than amongst others. Um, so we're using here the Wealth and Assets Survey. Um, we're, I, I don't think that affects the numbers we're talking about in terms of the people who are 10% of the way from the top. We're not really talking about Roman Abramovich or, or the people you see in the Sunday Times Rich List. Um, they're, um, I think those people at the top are out of this. Um, so the hyper-wealthy... Uh, you need different kinds of surveys to, to get at them. I mean, I, I think it's no secret that their wealth has increased faster than anybody else's wealth and, and recovered. I mean, you, you can look at the numbers in the Forbes rich list or the, or the Sunday Times rich list. I mean, whether the non-DOMs would be, uh, um, would, would be eligible to take part in the surveys aimed at a residence, I, I, I'm not sure. But I think they're, they're just a completely different picture from, if you like, the everyday inequalities we're describing here between people near the bottom and people near the top, rather than... This is going on quite apart from what's happening up in the stratosphere. Um, And in terms of the drivers, I mean, Polly was showing numbers, we we have on the website, which do show these very poor outcomes for the Muslim population. I don't, I'm afraid, have the knowledge to know whether there is evidence that has been driven by Islamophobia. All I would say is just the observation that we have seen those, that deterioration in outcomes over this period. Yeah, I mean, we don't, we don't have direct evidence from this work, um, but we can look at it the other way, and that's the increasing um, rates of unemployment. Um, we, in London, we um, show for Pakistani, Bangladeshi, and low pay being a particular problem, and um, we know that... Um, Ethnic, certain ethnic minority groups um, and Muslim population are overrepresented in unemployment and that young, young adults um, are overrepresented in unemployment. So if we bring those two together, um, and we haven't done that yet, but it would be interesting to do that, um, we, we could be thinking about the kind of social divisions that result from the patterns that we see. Mm. Okay. okay, next set. One, two... And there, three, great. Okay, hi. Um, so, talking about London, I think what I took from your your talk was that uh, sort of the, the property prices and the, the cost of uh, rent in London is one of the driving factors of the inequality, both yeah. in terms of the increasing uh, wealth of the property owning uh, higher percentiles, and then the the cost of renting being one of the dominant factors as to why people can't save and then can't. Uh, why they don't seem to be doing as well this time around. So would you agree with that as a sort of summary? Yes. Um, okay. Yeah. No, wait. <laughs> that was a straight answer. Uh, 
Thanks very much. So two uh, really illuminating talks. But uh, one thing that just occurred to me at the end of uh, Polly's talk was uh, the fact that the uh, ratio between the, the top 10 and the 90 percentiles uh, had actually decreased a bit since the two relevant periods and also the percentage increase in the wealth of the bottom 10 percentile had increased, which was, uh, I think, to 45 percent as opposed to a, to a lesser percentage. Now, obviously, the discrepancy is so enormous that those percentage increases look to some extent irrelevant. But from a policymaker's point of view, it's really interesting to know how that's happened because, of course, what, what we know is, is the rates of benefits have decreased, uh, the cost of housing has increased correspondingly. Uh, as you also showed, the number of people who are now receiving a wage which is less than the living wage has decreased. So it would be really interesting to have some idea why it is, despite that, that the percentage increases looked as they did, uh, and particularly the discrepancy between inequality changed in the way that it did too. Okay, great. In terms of the implication, uh, does your research suggest the need for a mansion tax or an inheritance tax? Okay, who wants to go first? Polly, do you want to take uh, the London uh, prices one first? Yeah, so um, housing, um, the issue of housing costs does emerge as the major, a major driver of inequality um, in London, the, the falls in income are much, much bigger when we take account of um, housing costs and um, we've seen these really um, awful rates of after housing costs income amongst the poorest um, private renters. So definitely if we're trying to um, infer some public policy um, insights from this work, I think um, the need for affordable housing um, is high on the list um, and perhaps um, compliance, greater compliance with London living wage being um, the second one. Um, the 90-10 um, the um, ratio um, for wealth, yes, is coming um, down a bit. That includes property um, wealth in London, so I imagine that's um, property prices um, even at the lower end of the distribution, the effect of those spreading. Yeah, I, I think it's a very interesting question, and it, it, it kind of it depends what you think matters. So what we've seen with wealth inequality is we haven't seen big increases in... In fact, we've seen some decreases in measures of wealth inequality like the famous Gini coefficient or the 90-10 ratio, which are comparing the wealth of the wealthy with the wealth of the middle and the wealth of the people at the bottom, just in, in terms of one another. And, and you see, there's a small... There's a small de- well, there's, there's a decrease, a significant decrease in that. But that may not be the thing that matters if you're trying to think about how people's lives pan out. Because what, that, that's true if what you're doing is swapping houses. If you want to move from one house to another, then there's, there's been a little bit of a squeeze there. But if you're thinking in terms of what that represents in terms of years of congealed income, the gaps have risen. The absolute gaps have risen a lot. And at the bottom here, even within London, we're talking about um, an, an increase in, in the wealth numbers if they were still up there. Um, of 43%, but that's to £4,500 by comparison with the numbers over a million at the top. So, so the, the numbers of years' worth of average income that the, the top have moved away from the bottom and the middle is, um, is considerable. So it depends what you think matters, why you're interested in wealth. Are you interested in wealth by comparison with itself, or are you interested in wealth by comparison with, with people's other life chances? And the, in that case, it's the absolute gap you're interested in. Um, it's value relation, in relation to other things, rather than, than internal measures like the, like the Gini coefficient. 
Um, in terms of does this make a case for um, a mansion tax or indeed more progressive um, council tax bans um, or inheritance tax, I think you will all have to make your own minds up on that. Um, all that I would put in front of you is that the policy regime we've had in the last few years has had, as far as taxes and benefits are concerned, a combination of reductions in income tax because of the increase in the income tax allowance and um, reductions in the relative value of Social Security benefits. The numbers we've got here don't show that, but, but modelling work through to, to the current year shows that if you put those two together, the effects have been regressive. Um, and they haven't, between the two of them, just benefits and direct taxes, haven't contributed very much to deficit reduction. It's been just a transfer from the, top half of the, the, from the bottom half of the distribution to the top half of the distribution. Um, so if, you've, if we are facing a situation where we already have at the bottom end, um, even before some of the most draconian um, benefit cuts come in, so only up to March 2013, these very low levels of income at the bottom, these very large drops in income at the bottom for some groups that we've been showing, and we have most political parties committed to deficit reduction, um, it would seem to me that if you're worried about inequality and living standards at the bottom, um, the money to um, do what needs to be done has got to come from somewhere. And the implication of this is that it should be coming from those with the broadest shoulders. And as we've seen, particularly within London, there are some people with particularly broad shoulders. One final set of questions, if there are any. Okay, uh, I'm going to take one from each of this. I'll take you, sir, lady there, and that gentleman over there. Sorry. Um, where do you think inequality is going to be in 10 to 20 years' time? Do you think it will still be this unequal? Okay. Nice crisp question. Yeah. Um, I wondered if you'd done any sectoral analysis of uh, some of the pressures on wages and employment, or unemployment on equality. So whether there's a part of a trend of the changing economic structure that's going on, or whether there's changes within different um, economic sectors, and if they themselves are differentiated, and particularly in terms of the effects of inequality, growing inequality on younger people who are coming into the labour market at the moment. Good question. Yeah. And it's that gentleman, yeah. Um, it was mentioned um, that uh, there was a weekly earnings decrease amongst young people um, in this latest publication, and I wondered how, the, how much that is attributable to uh, the prevalence of zero-hour contracts. Okay, three good questions. Who wants to go first? You? Oh, I'll go quickly okay. first. So um, on, on the sexual issue, and so the, the, the trend towards part-time work um, from our findings seems particularly marked um, amongst lower-skilled groups, um, and, and so there, it does seem to be trend towards kind of casualisation and um, maybe not zero-hours contracts, but lower-hours, more informal working um, amongst those groups. That's, that's a particular um, finding from London um, that would address that point. 
In terms of, do you, did you want to take the sectoral analysis one? Because I think this. Do you want to take a wider one on that? Yeah. So that was. It, it, yeah. there's, there's, this, there's a gender dimension there and a race dimension as well in terms of the sector analysis isn't it, in certain, certain sectors of, it, of the economy. Yeah. Um, no, we haven't, done, we haven't done that work in this piece of analysis. Um, I mean, there's been some quite interesting work done um, recently by uh, the Resolution Foundation. There was a, um, a commission set up by the Resolution Foundation chaired by George Bain Mm. Um, that looked at the scope for um, variation in, in minimum wage between sectors on the basis of relative demand in different sectors and what different sectors could bear. And I think that might be a, a useful source of, of information on that, but it's not one of the breakdowns we've looked at. Um, I mean, I do think you know, we're, we're in at the early part of the effects of the spread of zero-hours contracts um, in, in some of the data we're looking at. But I think we, you can detect, if you look at how low the very lowest part-time earnings are, there are clearly people there with very short hours, um, lower than they, than, they would, than they would necessarily want. Um, so I think we're beginning to see some of those effects of casualisation um, coming through this. Um, I think also it's quite striking the increase in self-employment that we see in, in some areas. And I, I think there's very little escape from the idea that only a small part of that increase in self-employment are, are the budding entrepreneurs who are, um, who are doing very well as self-employed. There are other people who are effectively casualised but declared by their, their non-employer as being self-employed. But there are also people who are um, escaping from, um, for the moment until universal credit comes in, they're escaping from some of the conditionality of unemployment job seekers' allowance by declaring themselves as self-employed and therefore being entitled to what's a probably a lower level of tax credits, but with many fewer questions asked other than kind of saying, yes, I am doing 30 hours a week, but, but without the kind of conditionality you get on benefits. So, so we seem to have, and we see it from the, from the overall income figures for the self-employed population, the very big drops over this period, that there must be some very casual marginal self-employment in there, which I think is part of the same phenomenon. And, and then just finally, um, would we like to forecast um, the level of inequality in 10, 20 or 30 years' time? Um, I remember looking at the statistics... Um, there was a very famous um, one of the foundation of a lot of work in this area, the Royal Commission on Distribution of Income and Wealth, um, published in 1978. Um, one of its members was Professor Tony Atkinson, um, whose book on inequality, what is to be done about it, will be launched at, in the Sheikh Zayed Theatre on the 30th of April at 6.30, uh, those of you who are interested. Um, he was a member of that commission. And it talked about how high inequality was in the UK in 1978, using data for 1976, of course, what we now know is that 1976 was the turning point. It was the lowest point of inequality, in certainly in terms of, of incomes um, that, that, that we've uh, possibly ever seen, um, certainly we've seen post-war. Post um, similarly, I was involved with um, a, uh, a report on income and wealth for the Joseph Roundtree Foundation, which mm -hmm. Barrett has been involved with, um, in the mid-1990s, and we had data up to 1990. And it was at that point that inequality, income inequality had been rising fastest in the UK, and we, we had data available up to the 1990s with inequality rising remorselessly by a staggering amount in international terms um, over the 1980s. Um, but it then levelled out, and in fact inequality... In, in, most measures have stayed roughly the same. It's wobbled around 
over those um, over the, that period. So things can change very rapidly, um, and I think it would be a bit of a mugs game to um, try and give you a forecast of where we're heading in a world of robots and lecturers being replaced by computers and uh, lecturers beamed in from Harvard um, or whatever exactly what, um, what all of this will look like. Um, it will probably be quite exciting. I hope it will be a rather better picture than we've just been presenting. Well, LSE is safe. It's one of the best universities, and you know, they, the, the Evening Standard editorial said so yesterday. So it must be true. Uh, it must be true. Uh, Our press office probably told them. <laughs> well, it's been an absolute pleasure for me, and I, and I hope it has been for you too, to hear amazing, great, wonderful presentations uh, as part of this LSE work. So I hope you'll join me in thanking John and Polly. Thank you.